Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. I'm Faraji Muhammad, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. Welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us. Every month on Future City, we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. This month on the show, we're talking about COVID-19 and the media, both traditional journalism like radio, TV, and print, and also social media. Now, how have people used media to learn about COVID-19? How are government and scientific authorities sharing information during a time when so many people have lost trust in them? And how are people handling the confusing and sometimes contradictory blend of life-saving information and life-threatening misinformation out there about the virus? Later on in the show, I'll talk to Dr. Jared Ball, professor of Africana and Communication Studies at Morgan State University, and WYPR's own Executive Director of News, Danielle Irby. But first, uh, we are joined by a very special guest. She is an investigative reporter for WBAL-TV here in Baltimore. And uh, she's gonna give us some insight about the communications of everything from vaccinations to masking to everything we needed to talk about about COVID and the good side and the not so good side on this episode of Future City. We're joined by now, Miss Jane Miller. How are you? Hey, Faraji, how are you? I'm good. Jane, you've been doing this a very long time, not to put any age on you. <laughs> <laughs> but I know that, um, you know, in terms of your experience in broadcasting and reporting, what has it been like for you to cover a global pandemic on a local level? I, I know we haven't necessarily experienced this, anything of this magnitude, but what has this been like for you? In our lifetimes, for the vast majority of us, this is an unprecedented situation. There really has not been a public health crisis like this since the flu of 1918. And obviously, all kinds of things are different since then. First of all, it's been a learning experience, mm. a steep learning curve, because we're dealing with public health issues. We're dealing with the public health infrastructure. We're dealing with a virus that is has no precedent to it in terms of, you know, there was no immunity to it because it's a, it was, that's why it's called the novel virus. So I think for the first, first six, eight months in 2020, it was an exhausting process of mm -hmm. reporting because you, you, first of all, were learning about it. There were new, you know, measures taken every day, then taken back. I mean, there was a constant flow of information and people were really interested in hearing information. I think we're probably going to get to the topic also of misinformation, which has been an extraordinary challenge during this time. But I think for the media in general, in terms of reporting it, it has been a learning experience and it has also been a, a real effort made, I think, by most media outlets to try to be as accurate as possible. And that hasn't always been easy. There has been very confusing information. In Maryland, we've had the situation where the governor's orders were kind of one thing, but then look jurisdictions imposed their own mandates and restrictions, which oftentimes were more severe. So um, it has been kind of a, depending on where you live, is how you're living by certain restrictions. Mm. And so that's also been um, challenging and just in terms of giving people the correct information. And, and, and if you could share 
um, a little bit about your personal experience of contracting COVID. Now that you have gone through that experience, has that put you in a place where you are a little bit more cautious about putting out certain information or, is you, or you, do you just completely say, you know what, that was my personal experience. And as a journalist, I'm going to just report on the facts here. How do you walk that thin line? So I contracted COVID in February. I was not vaccinated. I, this, I, was, I contracted COVID just before I was able to get a vaccine slot. That was back in, if you remember, in January and February, the rollout of the vaccine program mm-hmm. in Maryland was really fraught with all kinds of issues. And of course, mm-hmm. there was a very limited supply. Um, and so I actually got the appointment slot that I had signed up for nine days after I tested positive. So obviously too late. Um, I think that one of the things that has been a real personal learning experience for me with having to deal with COVID is that this has been a very slow recovery and I'm still not hundred percent. I am certainly better, but what has really dawned on me through all of this is that really most of the publicity and reporting about COVID-19 on the health side has concerned hospitalization and death. Certainly that is the hallmark of the disease is that it has been so, has had such severe impact on many people. But what has emerged through particularly the last eight, nine, 10 months is this idea that you don't necessarily get over all of it, or it leads to other things, or it, be, it has become a almost chronic condition with millions of people. We're not talking about a small number of people. Mm. And certainly my own experience in that regard with having lingering effects of the virus and still not being able to be back to 100%. Um, has has allowed me a much more informed uh, way of reporting and and considering how the 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 virus has impacted people. You know, some some agencies in the city of Baltimore are still not back up to full function. They have many openings. I did a story a couple of weeks ago that the level of vacancy in the city workforce is twenty five percent, which is extraordinarily high. Mm. And, you know, one of the things that's happened is that, so let's take people who've contracted COVID. Many of them chose to retire because it's had an impact on their health. Or, you know, folks that, you know, decided that it was better to work from home and now they maybe they can't work from home. It's had a huge impact um, in terms of how people live their lives, how people work on the workplace, et cetera. But I think from my own experience, what has been the lesson learned is that this is not, it's certainly not the flu. And I'll tell you what, nothing makes me angrier than to hear people dismiss COVID-19 as, oh, it's just the flu. This is not the flu. And I tell everybody that you don't want to get this. It's a life-changing experience. And I'm on the better side of people who have not yet been able to completely get past COVID and its lingering effects. It's also given me obviously greater understanding and just in terms of dealing with healthcare practitioners. Um, and, and now there is a, a much greater focus on this so-called long COVID. And so I've been mm-hmm. part of a couple of studies that, it, you know, that has really gotten off the ground finally to really examine what is going on because there's really no treatment. I mean, there's 
you know, there's monoclonal antibody treatment, which I had, you know, a couple of days after I contracted the virus back in February. And there are a couple of antiviral treatments that are available in hospitals, but there's really no like, oh, that's how we're going to treat this. There's, that, that hasn't happened yet. And that's certainly something that's in development and research. Mm. Now, speaking of treatment, Jane, as you just mentioned, you know, I mean, going from that personal experience and now you're hearing things, the information that you're running across, you are filtering it at a much higher level because you have to report back to a city of people who are trying to figure out what the heck is going on, who to trust, who to believe. There have been a number of conversations on mainstream media about social media, about Mm -hmm. the level of misinformation that has kind of gotten out there. And and how have you seen both information and misinformation uh, about this virus spread on on social media? Are there any specific trends that you have um, noticed? uh, Oh, where do you start? This is like the, this is like chapter, whatever of the social media impact. I mean, that's been, it's, it's certainly been rough um, to try to counter it. You feel like every day you're getting bombarded with misinformation and pushback. Children are vaccinated against measles, mumps, all of it. I mean, this is routine in this country. And here we have, you know, a situation where it's a little bit unprecedented, not not totally, but the, the idea of this massive rollout of a vaccine for adults um, is, you know, something that most people haven't experienced. So I think that that has that's part of the reason that there has been so much contentious debate over it is that it's first of all new. But a couple of the things that I constantly get on social media are that it hasn't been tested. It hasn't been around a long time. This is a whole new thing. And that's not correct. The platform on which these vaccines were developed, both Pfizer and Moderna and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is a different kind of vaccine, all come from existing platforms that were then used to develop the vaccine. So this isn't something that comes out of the clear blue sky. Secondly, the idea of safety, we have to remember that the trials for these vaccines started way back now. It's in the summer, perhaps even earlier um, of 2020. I mean, so the folks that were involved in those trials of the vaccine, and there are thousands of them, there has been a substantial amount of time in order to study them and to see Mm. if the vaccine has had any kind of, you know, negative effect on them. By and large, you know, the in the public health realm, what you we obviously read a lot about this in the media and study it, et cetera, is that if you're going to have an adverse effect to a vaccine, it's going to appear quickly within a couple of days and not down the road at some point. Social media on all topics has given everybody somewhat of a platform and a bullhorn. And so, Mm. you know, you you then look for kind of, you know, your choir, as I put it. So you see that person saying what you agree with. And the next thing you know, that gets amplified. And and looking forward, Jane, as we kind of wrap up this conversation, I mean, looking forward, do you think that Baltimoreans in particular um, will, will, you know, put 
you know, have a, 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 a renewed trust. I mean, given that new report and given how things have come, have kind of like moved along in the city, do you think that Baltimoreans will have a renewed trust uh, once we get out of this pandemic? Do you think that uh, we're, we're, we're going to see government institutions, the health department, the mayor's office? Do you think we're going to see the school system? Do you think that the city is going to be in a different and new place? Um, when it comes to communications, when it yeah. comes to information, just when it comes to um, handling a major crisis? Well, I think the one thing for sure that seems to be present now, um, and this is, you know, kind of the federal government putting its money where its mouth is, um, but making money available to strengthen the public health infrastructure. That, that has been exposed the weaknesses in the public health infrastructure have certainly been been exposed by this pandemic. Um, and so I think there's a pretty consistent push to strengthen the infrastructure of the public health system. You know, the city health department, for example, in Baltimore City, 80% of its funding is grant funding. Mm. You try to run an operation like that. You know, so, you know, like, for, to, for example, the police department, which has the largest budget, you know, of general fund budget of any agency, m m the vast majority of its money is coming from taxpayers. Mm. I mean, out of the general fund. Right. And but not the health department. So that's just an example of how we have kind of treated public health. You know, oh, let them, you know, go get grants. But I do think the one thing that is emerging is the need and really an urgent need to strengthen the public health infrastructure and to make sure it is equipped and nimble enough to respond when something like this happens, when you have an outbreak of something that, you know, it, the, the globally, I mean, people are, it, it's easy to spread something like this because people travel, they're in, you know, in contact with one another. Uh, and, and I think that's the one, the, the one thing that has really emerged is the need to strengthen that infrastructure. Jane Millers is the investigative reporter for WBAL-TV here in Baltimore. Jane, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining us here on Future City on WYPR. Thanks, Faraji. Thanks for having me. I'm Faraji Muhammad, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We have to take a brief break, but don't go away. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about COVID-19 and the media with Dr. Jared Ball, Professor of Africana and Communication Studies at Morgan State University in Baltimore. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Faraji Muhammad, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR, the show where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. Today on the show, we're talking about traditional media, social media, and COVID-19. I'm sitting down with a great scholar, Dr. Jared Ball, as he serves as the Professor of Communication Studies and the Africana Program at Morgan State University in Baltimore. He is the founder and curator of imixwhatilike.org, which is a multimedia hub of emancipatory journalism and revolutionary beat reporting. And he is the author of the book, The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power. Let's welcome to the airways of WYPR in Future City, Dr. Jared Ball. Jared, good to have you on, sir. How are you? It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Jared, uh, 
So we're in the midst of this pandemic. And I think that outside of the conversation around public health, there is, I feel like there are two conversations or there are two big things that we have to say when we define what this COVID-19 pandemic means. There's the public health side, and then there is the communication side. And as a person who thinks a lot about media, I mean, you've studied this for years, you've talked about this on, in many different places and settings, and as one who encourages not just adults, but you encourage students to be um, more uh, critical about media. Can you give us a big picture overview of how you think traditional media has been handling this pandemic, this public health crisis? Well, unfortunately, the traditional mainstream commercial press has handled it in very much the same way it handles everything, which is from the perspective of the ruling elite and its advertising base, its donors, its owners, its 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 class and political and racial interests. So uh, one of the problems that we have in terms of the, the public health side, as it relates to its response to a response to the communications environment is that so much of the well, so to speak, has been poisoned over the years that even when there are attempts to make righteous and what some or I or anyone might consider to be correct measures or, or uh, encouragements, there is a naturally and justifiably uh, resistant response. Uh, so uh, we get, you know, so, so much of the commercial, so just one quick example, so much of our media environment is owned uh, or uh, at the behest of uh, a, a big pharma, pharmaceutical industry that, that spends enormous amounts of money on advertising, not only to impact, of course, the medical uh, community, but the uh, media environment in terms of what kinds of, <clears throat> excuse me, messages or uh, again, inducements are promoted to its audience. So even when they may in fact be correct, maybe even when they may in fact be, uh, again, encouraging the right steps for people to take medicinally, there is going to be a natural, uh, not a natural, but an encouraged, and I think again, justifiable response that says, wait a minute, this, is, uh, this can't be trusted. Uh, now, the problem, of course, is that so much of what I and others would encourage in terms of steps to take individually uh, regarding critical media literacy uh, are an, uh, abandoned in response to uh, the, the fear mongering and the um, calls for emergency that we get so much of in, in so much of our media environment. So, so what ends up happening is that people stop asking themselves some of the basic questions that I think we all need to be asking, which is, how do we know what we know? And why do we like what we like? How are we reaching the conclusions that we're reaching? And so many of us are becoming self-proclaimed experts in some of the most technical medical areas mm -hmm. as a response to a media environment that, again, we don't trust and uh, are now trying to dive into in other areas to learn how to assess what is being promoted to us. And I think it's causing a lot of confusion uh, and in some cases, uh, uh, you know, ill health and, and worse. And that puts us in a very precarious position 
because you 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 know within it, especially in the social media realm, when you have quote unquote influencers, um, individuals who are you know they have a large following on social media platforms, and what many would say they have a, a platform that 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 people listen to them. But when you start to get into the weeds about the technical things about something as very, very complex as medicine, and especially during a time where I think that, and I think I can say this, like for a lot of us, we haven't experienced, unless you live in back in 1918 or something, <laughs> but we haven't experienced this before. And, and now we're opening ourselves up to all types of information being communicated because just as to kind of you, what you're speaking to, there seems to be this resistance. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a small media revolution that is happening. But the question that I think that we have to ask is, is this the time for us to have a media revolution um, when there is a major public health crisis? Well, on the one hand, I think this is a perfect time to have a, a broad-based political revolution. I mean, many of the questions that we have, some of us have been trying to address and fight for for a long time should be be coming back right now. You know, wh where is the national health care? Where is universal health coverage and stuff like that, which has already been shown would have saved uh, uh, hundreds of thousands, if not more, lives just, just had it, it existed during this crisis or even been developed or enacted during this crisis. Or, you know, uh, all these other questions about, uh, 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 distribution of wealth and employment and all of these questions that are being forced onto the table in some horrific ways um, right now are things that I think, uh, are, you know, are, are um, uh, give us room or, or, or make way uh, or set a condition that is right for uh, some really radical, if not fully revolutionary thought and, and movement to occur. Uh, but on the other hand, I do, I, I, I think to, to a certain extent, at least I get your, your, the point of your question, which is that uh, right now it, it, it should be a situation where we could turn on any of our more popular media outlets and see that they are chock full of substantive, clear, uh, honest, safe, reasoned explanations and suggestions and policies. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we should be able to do this and, and get, and, and, but, uh, um, and then act accordingly. But uh, whether it's Dr. Anthony Fauci or whether it's again, a, a pharmaceutical industry laden media environment that is encouraging all kinds of contradictory messaging uh, uh, and, 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 uh, exposing in some cases some really uh, shockingly dangerous uh, activities, whether it's, you know, regarding gain of function research or, or, or viruses or vaccination, all of these things, uh, we're, we're, it, what we're getting is the exact opposite. So, what, so this leads people who are paying it any attention uh, and attempting to get that reasoned, logical advice and explanation, even even in those spaces, you're getting contradictory, hostile, uh, even dangerous messaging. What we're getting is increased distrust and increased contradiction and increased confusion, which again leads people back to where I was going a moment ago to 
uh, trying to develop or push this media revolution in a sense that you're talking about, because they're saying, I'm not going to these sources anymore. I'm going to go find other sources. And then what happens as a result of that? Those other sources become, you know, in terms of my regular work, uh, the alternative sources that people are driven to are are in many ways equally dangerous and 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 uh, fallacious from my point of view. So they go to celebrities for economic advice. You know, they go to Ti and, and Killer Mike and, and others like that for economic advice. In the same way, now they're going to Nicki Minaj for medical advice um, uh, and and actually in the streets protesting. Uh, in defense of Nicki Minaj and her her the accuracy of her claims and analyses. Now, this to me is a dangerous situation because in either case, even if these artists and entertainers, because I'm certainly not suggesting that just because someone goes into entertainment that they can't they can't Have understand some, some right. But but at the same time, the idea I would think shouldn't be going to these folks for uh, uh, information and tactics on politics, economics, or medicine. Uh, we should have other people well positioned and trusted to give us you know direction on that. Uh, because just as much as those entertainers and artists have been practicing and plying their craft elsewhere, we have others who have been doing this work. Uh, and trained and are just as talented in these areas doing this work who are being excluded from the conversation. So it is, it is, I, I mean, I mean, this is, again, this is the, the, the environment that had pre-existed COVID, this media and political environment uh, that pre-existed COVID has uh, uh, on, in some ways, depending on how you look at it, turned against itself at a moment of crisis when it should be able to perform uh, a, a different function, and it cannot. And so when we look at all of those dynamics that you laid out, Jared, you know, there are some who have are on different spectrums, I'm sure you've heard all of the, 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 um, the, the varying views of this, just as much as I have. But, you know, talk to us about what you're seeing in terms of the impact of this level of communication, this level of information slash misinformation, especially on black and brown communities, because that level of distrust is so prevalent in those community and justifiably so. But now, where should black folks go? Where should the Latino and Hispanic communities go for to get to get some some real understanding about what's happening? I honestly do my best to self apply or, 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 or apply, you know, physician heal thyself, apply my own approach when dealing with this. And I first acknowledge I am not a med medical doctor. I am not trained in any of the fields that are uh, related to the vaccine, to the virus. I'm not to any of that. So uh, I'm a consumer of news. I, I do maybe go uh, another level or two beyond and try to read some of the research and the data. And I, you know, and I uh, talk to doctors who are in these fields and working in hospitals. Uh, and I and and then and then I hear everybody else within my own family, within my own you know uh, collectives. There are all the debates. I've had some very heated debates with 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 loved ones over these issues. And my the, the crux of my argument is usually around methodology. In, in other words, don't come to me with an argument that starts with I heard Nicki Minaj say. If you're going to try to convince me of anything, that just as a method, she may be right, 
but I need methodologically, I need something <laughs> else. So, so I'm just, so I just try to start with that and say, listen, none of us uh, are, are, are prepared and, and trained uh, uh, to understand any of the details. So we're all going off of our biases. And I think we all need to recognize that and then, and then think critically about the sources that motivate us to act. So, uh, uh, so I acknowledge it for myself. I have said, listen, uh, based on the, the radical political doctors who work in these fields and in hospitals and in communities that I know and trust and whose work I can, to a certain extent, uh, see and verify, they tell me we need to get vaccinated, um, get with the boosters when they come out, stop tripping and being, you know, uh, uh, concerned. And they've, and they've been on my platform, we, you know, and, and laid out all of the medicinal reasons why the vaccines are safe. They don't impact your DNA. They, they may not be the full on protective of everything, but all the numbers show that the people who are dying are those who are unvaccinated. So that's where I am on it. At the same time, I recognize I've read a number of other things, heard other competing arguments that are compelling that speak to the political economy of everything uh so even if even if the vaccines to the extent that people aren't critical of the vaccines there is a critique of the way that these vaccines are being developed patented controlled by big pharma uh, mm -hmm. pushed on us even beyond the necessity in terms of certain pockets of the population maybe not needing them so on and so on these are all compelling arguments but what i come back to is that i have to recognize listen I can read all of these things, but unlike specifically narrow areas or fields in which I am trained and, and, and could be considered somewhat of an expert, I cannot assess what I am actually reading. So if I read an article on mRNA vaccines, it may make a certain argument that is compelling to me, but at the same time, I cannot assess what the sources are saying, what the citations are saying. I cannot assess if this author or authors are interpreting the data correctly. I cannot necessarily trust my own assessment of the data that I may think I'm looking at in a raw uh, uh, sense. I may not. Uh, There's so many levels to this that 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 I at, the, at some point I do have to come back to and find what are my uh, uh, biased sources. I acknowledge that. Uh, and then, and then rock with that. Now, again, the numbers seem pretty clear that overall the, the virus may not be killing as many people as so much of the fear is being encouraged in us to accept as, you know, being necessary. But at the same time, those who are dying seem to overwhelmingly be those who are not vaccinated. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's where I have rested uh, uncomfortably, admittedly, uh, and that, you know, but ultimately what I encourage of others is to be honest about their method. I, I can't argue the details. I can't even argue some of the conclusions people reach, but I have to argue and encourage people to check their methods. How are you reaching your conclusions? Who's telling you to make the choice that you are ultimately making? And is that a reasonable, uh, you know, source for you? That's what I have to encourage people to do, because I think that at this point, it is not possible for any of us to become medically expert enough to say one way uh, or another definitively. So we have to trust on the experts uh, that are telling us what to do and then and then and then say, how how am I assessing their expertise? And then I'll stop here by saying what I said was very specific. 
The doctors that I have come to trust are some that I have known for a long time. I know their training, their background. They are working in hospitals. So they are clinically, there are a lot of people talking medicinally who are not clinicians, who are not practicing, who are not in the specific medicinal field that is related to what these issues are. Uh, and the people I am listening to are. So, and they are, they are all black and brown and they are all wildly, politically radical, as am I, admittedly. So that's where my bias is. And they are saying, look, it may not be perfect, but get the vaccine because that is what will save your life, particularly if you're black and brown, particularly if you are an elder, and particularly if you have pre-existing uh, conditions. One of the debate, Jared, uh, that has come to the surface during this whole pandemic has been um, something that I think is very interesting, which rests on the divide between personal freedom and the common good. What, what do you think about how this debate has played out in conversations about things like masking and, and the vac vaccination? Hey, listen, never mind any predilection I may have politically to to wildly left of center politics uh, as a as a as an, uh, 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 an African descendant, I, I, I recognize the, the power in the collective, the necessity of the collective. So I've always struggled with this, this really Eurocentric and, and, and particularly American uh, developed and imposed concept of the individual. Uh, so I'm not really moved by arguments about individual freedom versus the, the, the you know, whatever else. I am moved by the collective. So uh, we have, you know, in terms of this specific issue, again, not as in necessarily in, in specifically to argue in favor of vaccines. I am not a doctor. I don't know. I've already explained what my conclusions on that. But to mm -hmm. say we already give up uh, so-called individual rights for the good of the collective, as other people have been pointing out all over the place, whether it's 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 other vaccines. Most of us uh, have been vaccinated already. Uh, without uh, any any uh, individual right not to be, uh, you know, we give up our rights in terms of laws, whether it's it's you know where you can smoke, where you you know it, uh, uh, where you stop and start when you drive, seat belts, all kinds of things are imposed regulation that go above and beyond so-called individual rights that are supposed to help the good of the collective. So I don't see where that part, that part of the argument should come into this particular discussion. And especially if the vaccine, uh, if, in terms of a vaccine, especially if the argument is, if, if scientifically, medically, it's shown as I am relatively comfortable, it, it might reach my own conclusion that it is, that, that medicinally it's not only good for you, but good for others. Uh, to get the vaccine in terms of reducing the rate of transmission or reducing the likelihood of getting sick and and imposing ourselves further on the, med the, the, the medical practitioners. Um, we should do it. I mean, it's good for the collective. And, and my point would be we shouldn't not do it because of some what I think is an overblown and ridiculous notion of individual rights. Uh, if, if you don't want to get the vaccine, please don't make it be because you've, you're, you're trying to protect your individual rights. That part of the argument, I think, is the, is the least um, moving one. So anyway. Mm -hmm. Dr. Jared Ball is a professor of communication studies in the Africana program at Morgan State University here in Baltimore. He is also the founder and curator of imixwhatilike.org, a multimedia hub of emancipatory journalism and revolutionary beat reporting. And he is author of the book, The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power. 
Jared, thank you so much, brother, for being a part of our conversation here on Future City. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm Faraji Muhammad, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We have to take a brief break, but don't go away. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about COVID-19 and the media with Danielle Irving, Executive Director of News here at WYPR. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm Faraji Muhammad, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR, the show where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. Today on the show, we're talking about traditional media, social media, and COVID-19. Joining me now is Danielle Irby. Danielle is the executive director of news here at WYPR, and we welcome her to Future City. Hi, Danielle. How are you? Hey there, Faraji. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Early on in the pandemic, you you launched a new podcast here at WIPR called The Daily Dose, which has been a space for COVID-related news in addition to some other reporting from this station. Why did you and the station want to create a new show like that? Well, you know, it came out of a conversation with our general manager, LaFontaine Oliver. Um, Ironically, I was just uh, starting here uh, when the pandemic hit. I had not been here maybe a couple of months And, uh, you know, even as a journalist, you know, I'm a citizen like everyone else. And, you know, the news was coming at us fast and furious. I mean, as you remember, when it first started, we didn't even have a name for it, uh, Mm COVID-19. And there was so much, you know, misinformation uh, just due to the fact that so much information was coming at us. As you can remember back uh, March 2020, which, you know, in some ways seems like 10 years ago and other ways seems like last week, you know, something would come out one day and then there would be different information the next. We were getting information from, you know, the the WHO, from the CDC, you know, uh, friends, family, and there was just, you know, so much coming at us. And uh, uh, LaFontaine and Oliver and I, we had a conversation, we went to lunch and he immediately said, you know, we need to do something for our public radio listeners that gives them the information as we're getting it, uh, what our team, our news team is covering, you know, stands a fire hose, something that can be toward the end of the day. We put out the podcast, you know, around six, seven at night. That's more of a, uh, a synopsis of what happened during the day in, in a calm fashion because uh, the news was coming at us so quickly. You have, especially over this past year and a half, I mean, there has been this onslaught of fast moving news related to COVID. I mean, sometimes something we we, we thought was true about the virus one day is shown not to be true the next. I mean, how, how do you navigate that as you run the, your newsroom and how do you decide what you're going to cover, what you're going to focus on to cover? Well, that's a good question. Uh Again, so many things were happening at the beginning of this pandemic. You know, Mm -hmm. also last year during the height of it, we uh, hired a Report for America Corps member, uh, Sarah Y. Kim, who has become our dynamic uh, health and housing reporter. You know, Mm -hmm. ironically, her beat was supposed to be just focusing on the housing crisis in Baltimore City, but she was onboarded during a pandemic. And so we quickly shifted and... uh, 
you know, she got to know all the, uh, the medical professionals, the uh, medical academians in our community, and she really hit the ground running. And, uh, you know, there was so much, again, low-hanging fruit as far as what to cover, you know, and again, so we decided as a small team, we're going to cover what matters, the same questions that, you know, people at home had from, you know, remember schools closed immediately, what do I do about that? I'm working from home, you know, or I have to go into work and I'm, my job is forward facing. How do I keep myself safe? So, you know, we just attack this from all angles, from a health perspective, uh, from what local uh, lawmakers were saying and doing. And uh, we just, uh, we met every morning, we talk every morning and we decided, okay, here's what we can attack that has the most impact with our small team that gives our uh, audience the information that they need to make their own decisions because it was new to all of us when it was happening. And, and, and as we're talking about that reporting process, I know that the role of the journalists, part of their role is to not just report the facts and provide coverage of big moments, but it is to essentially guide people through those moments of real uncertainty. And sometimes that means making sense of contradicting guidance from different authorities. Do you empower your reporters to rely on their own opinion to shape the coverage when we get that contradictory information? What do you tell your reporters if the CD says, CD says one week, hey, take your mask off if you're vaccinated, the next week say, hey, keep your mask on even if you're vaccinated. How do you relay that information to your reporters? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if I would agree so much as empowering reporters to report based on their opinion. Mm. It is more so empowering them to report based on common sense, to listen to what is in the zeitgeist. If we are confused about something, again, because we are citizens of the world, we're affected by COVID just like everyone else. So if we don't know something, let's find out about it. If we are hearing something that needs to be reported on, uh, we do it and we go deeper. I mean, as you know, Maryland is is leading the nation with one of the lowest COVID rates, or I should say one of the highest vaccination rates. I think we're above 81, 82 percent given the day. Mm -hmm. And that's fine to promote that. That's a good thing. But as we know, there are pockets in Maryland, in the county, in Baltimore City, where there are very low vaccination rates and people are suffering from COVID. So to give you an example of empowering reporters, uh, our reporter, Rachel Bay, who covers the state legislature and covers really the state, uh, just did a fantastic three-part series on Garrett County in Western Maryland, which has an extremely low vaccination rate and high vaccination hesitancy and a belief in misinformation that's out there. So she went and spent a few days out there and talked to residents and health professionals um, because I believe that we have to give voice to the other side. Now, to me, the other side means not the other side, the enemy, but the other side, those who don't believe in the science and also already had a built-in mistrust of government, as you said, and taking into consideration that you know, the rollout of the vaccine, the misinformation, or I should say the changing information that's come out has only, I guess, further entrenched those beliefs of people like, you know, I don't trust this. 
I don't want this vaccine, you know, from those who are genuinely worried about it for health reasons to the opposite, you know, the extreme yeah. men who think that, you know, the pandemic is some government cons- conspiracy, but you don't not report on what they say and what they're feeling because it's not based in science. You have to give those people a voice because it's affecting all of us. We're all intertwined with this pandemic. Which leads to another part of that question, Danielle, when you're talking about giving people that space and that voice to share even their their sentiments, their fears, their uncertainty, uh, do you feel like that, that public radio should play or have a different role than other media outlets just because it is just that, public radio? I feel that public radio must live up to its mission, which is to inform the public and give people the tools, the information and tools they need to make their own decisions about how they go about in the world. Mm. I don't think as any journalist, it is our job to tell people what to think or what to do, Mm. but you give enough information and accurate reporting that is vetted and that's delivered in a fashion that is digestible for people to have the tools to say, huh, maybe I can think about this differently, or I didn't know that, or here's what I needed to make this decision about whatever it is. And that's what I think the mission of good journalism is, period, to be honest. I like that. I feel like that's a mission, Danielle, that we're going to, and I mean, at least on this side of the microphone, that we should all strive to live up to. Um, especially moving forward. I mean, we're we're not out of the woods yet of this pandemic, but I think that we can clear a much um, stronger path forward when we also, you know, we give people space to share, but then we 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 maintain the integrity of providing accurate information, life-saving information that can um, help people to make better decisions about how to protect themselves and keep themselves safe for themselves and their family. Agreed. <laughs> we appreciate you so much for uh, taking time to, been, to, to speak with us uh, here on Future City. I've been speaking with Danielle Irby, Executive Director of News here at WYPR. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. And again, thank you for having me. Absolutely. As we have these conversations about COVID-19, government communication and media interpretation, we can't lose sight of what's at stake at this moment, the truth in our own sanity, a moment where we must seek and speak the truth regardless to how hard it may be, so it will prepare us for what's to come, a moment that requires us to be critical and thoughtful about the information we follow. A moment that forces us out of our comfort zone of self to be in the uncomfortable space of another, to understand their pain, their hopes, and their value. A moment that compels us to have hope in ourselves like we never had it before. Government institutions, public health officials, and even some media may try to over-politicize or create a narrative rooted in fear and misinformation to dictate our behavior in this moment. But we can create our own moment by overcoming these forces 
with our humanity that can serve as the key for our strength, compassion, and resilience. That's how we take this moment, learn from it to become better. Future City is produced and edited by Mark Gunnery. We welcome your feedback and you can email us with your thoughts and questions about the show at futurecity at wypr.org. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations we heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, please visit wypr.org and search for Future City. Future City airs here on WYPR on the fourth Wednesday of every month at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. Until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Farajah Muhammad. Thanks for listening. Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com.